Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the living Jesus. Hallelujah. Shall we bow our heads? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you, Lord, for guiding us here once again to learn at your feet. And even as we go into your words, I pray that you shall open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. And I pray that you shall use me as your instrument in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. As I go through your word and as I speak to your people in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. For in Jesus' name we've prayed. Amen. We can have our seats. Welcome, welcome again to a beautiful Wednesday service. I'm happy to see everyone's beautiful faces. It's nice to be in God's presence. We've been going through the book of James for a while now, and sadly, it's coming to an end. In the next two weeks, we will be done exploring James. Um, and today, we're going to be looking at James chapter 5, from verse 1 to 12. Um, I titled this, The Venom of Riches and the Virtue of Patience which is a very interesting title, if you look at it. Um, you might be wondering, what does riches have to do with venom? Why that particular word? Um, if you look at what the meaning of venom is, I mean, the first thing that comes to your mind is a poisonous substance, you know. And um, venom can be described as an extreme malice and bitterness shown towards someone else in terms of speech, actions, and attitudes. Um, it is a poisonous substance that is released from, you know, snakes, scorpions, and spiders, especially when they want to attack their prey, and they bite, and they release that venom. And patience is a virtue. Virtue certainly means conforming to a standard of morality, um, mainly in strength and courage. And today we're going to be looking at James chapter 5. And James highlights two, two key points. He first talks about warning to the rich oppressors and patience in suffering. So shall we turn to James chapter 5 from verse 1 to 12. James chapter 5 from verse 1 to 12. I read. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your misery. That shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasures together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your field, which is of you, kept back by fraud. Cry it, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, 
unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waited for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receives the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord draweth near. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy, which endure. Ye have heard the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord. And the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay be nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. Praise the Lord. And in the first six verses of this particular, you know, passage, um, I titled it as, What is it about riches? What is it about riches? You know, you might be reading through it and be thinking, well, what, what, what is James trying to say here? Does, does he mean that riches are bad or they are not good? Because to come to that conclusion would be a misinterpretation of what these verses are trying to say. Wealth can be a great blessing if it is used in the right way, pleasing to God. But in many cases, we've seen that it has been used and people have abused the power of money to exercise dominion over other people. The first question you need to ask yourself is, okay, what, what, what quantifies as riches? Because you might be reading this and be thinking, well, I'm not rich. You know, like, this doesn't apply to me. So what is James saying here? What quantify as riches is someone who has a decided advantage over another person. Someone who has a temporal advantage over another person. And it doesn't just stop at money. A monetary value. You know, the God has bestowed upon people certain level of grace. For some people, they, when it comes to counsel, you know, God has given them wisdom to be able to speak to people, to be able to counsel people. And in that terms, that's considered as riches because when you come to them and they counsel you, and you go and do what they say you should do, you see that, you see the reward of it. So it's not just limited to money. It's very fascinating that in the church today, a lot of people, you know, find it easy to, you know, they see a beggar on the street, you know, and... They find it easy to just, you know, give them 2000 you know, they probably will not see the beggar again. But their fellow brethren who are not strangers to them, they find it hard to willfully give, being the keyword, without being asked to.
And if you move, you continue to move down, you will see that these oppressors, you know, there were some certain actions that were displayed among them that um, James started to list down. If we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 from verse 6 to 10, I just want us to read that real quickly. First Timothy chapter 6 from verse 6 to 10. Um, book of First Timothy chapter 6 really talks about Christian conducts and how Christians should behave in the world. And verse 6, it starts to say, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therefore content. But they that will be rich fall into temptations, and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destructions and perditions. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You see, the, the problem here is not riches. The problem is that those who are rich are always associated with oppression and abuse. You know, they always use their money or their wealth or their riches as a way to hold it over people. See, the interesting thing about giving or interesting thing about wealth and riches is that it's not the action per se, but the state of the heart. You know, you can give someone with envy and malice, and, and that's why I said the venom of riches, because it's, it's truly the state of the heart that matters. In the first point here, we see that these rich oppressors, these men were, first and foremost, they were heaping up treasures in the last day. Um, the last day referring to um, the current age of grace, or which signifies the closing days of the apostolic age of the church. I mean, we are already in the last days. We all know it, right? And... You know, it's very fascinating that everything that has been mentioned here is actually happening now. But we also need to look at and examine what was classified as riches in terms of James, um, in James' time. You know, he mentioned gold, he mentioned silver, he mentioned garments, and these things were what was prominent, and these were the things that were considered as riches. I mean... In our present time is something different, but still the same, you know. The, the lesson behind it is still the same. A lot of people are heaping up treasures today. I mean, people are having three million in their house and they don't want to, you know, put it inside the bank. For one reason or the other, who knows? A lot of people just like to, they, they, they take pleasure in seeing all they have. And it gives them 
pride or it makes them happy just to see it, you know. And we see it a lot on social media. You see a lot of people, you know, you know, being happy or being content or being just feeling some type of way that, oh, you know, I have 250 sneakers. I mean, how many days do we have in, how many days do we have in a year? 365, I mean, out of that, you're not going to wear sneakers for all of them, right? And people just take pride in that. If you look at Second Peter 3, verse 3, 2 Peter 3, verse 3 says, Knowing this first, that they, that they shall come in the last days, scoffers, walking after their own lust. And like I said, this is what is happening in our times. People are heaping up treasures for themselves. The next point is defrauding the laborers. Defrauding the laborers. I mean, the laborer is worthy of his wages, and these people, you know, use their authority, use their power to oppress people. It brings us back to um, the parable of in Matthew 20, 1 to 16, about the vineyard worker, whereby Jesus was giving the parable and saying that um, he hired laborers into the vineyard to work. And the first and foremost, the first thing that Jesus did was to agree with them for a penny a day, you know. And they both agreed. And went back, you know, saw people being idle, and Jesus called them, and Jesus said, whatever is right, I would give you. Jesus didn't necessarily promise them a penny, but just said, come, you know. And he did that to the last hour. And when it was time to share, you know, they gathered all of them, and Jesus gave them each a penny, you know. And the first set of people were, like, grumbling, and they start to murmur against, you know, the householder which represented Jesus. And so that that this is unfair. Like, what do you mean? Like, we've walked and told all day, and these people just came in, and they probably just walked for one hour, you know. And, you know, the response was that, uh, don't I have the will to do with my own property? And, you know, the next thing, and, you know, Jesus responded and said, dear friend, which was a very interesting thing to say at that point in time, and said that, have you become evil because I am doing you? Good. And if you look at James chapter 2, it has the same connotations to it. If you see James chapter 2 from verse 1 to 5, and it says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, which respects of persons. For if there come unto you, to your assembly, a man with a gold ring, in godly apparel, and they come in also a poor man in vile raiment. And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand out there, or sit here under my footstool. Are you not partial in yourself, and have you not become judge of evil thoughts? And it's very interesting that these two, you know, passages, you know, 
they, they specifically highlight that when it comes to Jesus, there's no partiality. There's no partiality in God's kingdom. And also that this separation or this segregation between from here, the poor and the rich, you know, even thinking those thoughts are evil and are not of God. You know? And it highlights that if you look at the Old Testament, if you look at Leviticus, you know, 19 verse 13, it talks about how um, um, we should make sure that the laborers are paid, you know, before morning comes if they've worked, you know. And the Old Testament forbade landowners who refused to pay at the end of the day. But end of the day, through some technicalities, these people got away with it. And it's interesting that, you know, it says that their cries are being heard and the Lord of the Sabbath hears their suffering and hears what they are going through. A lot of people are, in today's world, are, are robbing their spiritual leaders and robbing their pastors and they don't even know that they are robbing all in the name of temporal advantage. You know, the Bible says, will a man rob God? But yes, you've robbed me in tithe and offering. Now, as Christians, we need to understand the way we treat God also reflects on the way we treat our spiritual fathers and our spiritual leaders who, you know, time and time again, they intercede for our soul. Not because, you know, they, they want to, but they have to. And it's not an easy thing. And a lot of times, Christians neglect that fact. You see, assumption is the lowest form of intelligence. And in the house of God, a lot of us assume. And we take that assumption and we run with it. If you don't know something, ask. Truly ask. We just assume and we run away with it. And a lot of people are, they're robbing their spiritual leaders. It's interesting that um, uh, the apostle of this ministry gave an example whereby there was this lady who got blessed in his ministry. And as she got blessed, she left the church and, you know, she went somewhere else, so to speak. And even as she got blessed and she was building a house, she said something that, which I found very baffling to say. And said, ah, don't worry, pastor, I will give you my boy scotter. It's a very insulting thing to say, you know. And she said it and she went. And at some point in time, you know, our daddy wanted to travel, you know, and he was praying and believing God. And at first, she said she was going to do it. She was going to buy the ticket. Then she left, and she came back. Got into some trouble. She came to beg daddy. Daddy was like, I didn't do anything wrong to you. I didn't offend you. And she was like, okay, I will buy the ticket and everything. And daddy said, I've already bought the ticket. Open drawer, shoulder. You don't need to do anything. It's not me that you offended. It's God. It's not me. I'm just doing my work. I'm just standing in. And a lot of times we treat, we treat our spiritual leaders, we treat our pastors like that. 
you know, every time a message is being, you know, thought, you know, our first response is not to say it doesn't apply to me. Our first response is to search ourselves and say, okay, what does this mean? What does this mean? And the next is embracing pleasure and luxury. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, well what's wrong in pleasure? What's wrong in a little pleasure? Is God saying that he doesn't want us to, you know, live or enjoy or, you know, chop life, as they, as they say. No. Embracing the life of pleasure or luxury means indulging in one's lust. Doing everything they can to satisfy oneself. You know, there are a lot of wolves in sheep clothing who are exploiting their flocks to satisfy their own earthly desires. And when it comes to want, you can never be satisfied. It's, it's endless. The more you have, the more you want. Literally, I mean, the only thing that is stopping some people is because the money is not there present. But once the money lands, that's the first thing. And once they've gotten it, they want more. Because it's endless. You see, there is no point of having wealth, of having riches. There is no value to it if it is not used for the kingdom of God. There's no value to it. First yeah. Timothy 6, verse 17 to 19, you know, says something interesting about it. It says, are we there? It says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. See, it's God that richly blesses without any condition, you know. You know, there will be people in this world who would never have millions or billions in their lifetime. But God still sustains them. Each and every day, God still provides for them. They may never have millions. They may never touch billions. They may never see it with their, their two eyes. But God still sustains them. Still does. Still does. So there's no point in having all the riches of this world if it's not put into God's kingdom. It has no value. It truly has no value whatsoever. 
we move on to the fourth, which talks about the, condem the condemnation and murder of the just. You know, um, if you turn to Exodus 23, verse 7. Exodus. Exodus. 23. And this was God's instruction to them. And God says, Exodus 23, keep thee far from a false matter, and the innocent and righteous lay down not, for I would not, for I would not justify the wicked. It's very fascinating. Um, Solomon said something that there is nothing new under the sun. All we're doing in this world today is just recycling. Recycling back and forth. And James is saying, the condemnation and the murder of the lost, of the just. That these oppressors will pay for it. And the balance of the two is, first and foremost, let us know that those who are subject, or those who have, are subject to God. And that they should live right. Because it is God that wills for them to have. Amen. Ecclesiastes says, we, you came out from your mother's womb with nothing. And you're going to live with nothing. And the second point is, those who don't have should understand that what lies ahead is far greater than the treasures that are present now. You know, we read about, you know, Dorcas, you know, in Acts chapter 9, you know. It's very interesting that Dorcas was only mentioned once. But yet, that one time was enough that people have posters, paintings of Dorcas, like, everywhere, even now. You could see and you could feel the admiration of a single woman who was a seamstress who used all our resources to take care in the community, the widows in the community. She saw a need and she fulfilled it. You know, it's interesting that when, when you talk about need, people always think that fulfilling someone's needs is, is just basically giving them money. That's not always the solution. That when she died, it, it, it shook that community. It shook because it was like, no, we, we, can't, we can't allow this woman. It's because of what she did that spurred the widows to go and call for Peter to say, okay, this, this, this woman, see, see, if you need proof, let me show you proof. Look at what, look at what she did for us. Look, how, look at how... She took care of us. She didn't need to. We didn't ask her. But she did. I can just imagine if you bring it back now. I mean, for all the ladies in the house, at least that go to market, if you're trying to price, sorry for the men, but you know, 
Go to market, you're trying to price like five yards, you know, a good material, five yards, whether it's lace or tissue, tissue material, say 20,000, okay? You're not using the whole five, you're just using maybe like three yards. But that's just, that's just one price. To sew again is another money. It's another money. So when I think about it, I know seamstress, you know, all these people that tell us, they know how to manage materials. I don't know how they do it. When they are doing for themselves, it's different from when they are doing for other people. They know how to squeeze. But it's just fascinating that this woman bought the materials. She didn't just say, oh yeah, you know, buy it, let me give you. She bought it. And she made beautiful garments for this woman. And it was like, we can't, we can't allow her to go. You also look at Act 16. You look at... Um, Lydia, who had a very lucrative dye business, who was a very rich woman, as, as, as was said in Act 16. And this was someone who used her resources, her resources to support Paul's ongoing ministry. And you see examples like that, you know, throughout Act 16, Act 18 as well. And you see these people and you marvel and see their, the hunger they didn't need to be asked to do it. They saw the need and they attended to it. And it kind of spurs us as Christians, you know, how we should behave, how we should also impact our environment where we are. And first and foremost, to our fellow brethren who are in the faith. You know, Colossians 3, verse 23, you know, Apostle Paul said something really interesting, you know, which applies to Dorcas. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. It's kind of interesting because that's what Dorcas did. She didn't, she didn't see it as, oh, you know, oh, these people. She saw it as a duty and as a role as, okay, I'm doing this for the Lord. It's not just, I don't just see my pastor. I see my pastor as someone who God is using. And I see my spiritual father as someone who God is using. So I'm doing this with that mindset. And James moved further. If you look at starting from James chapter 5 from verse 7, there was, there was a shift in focus from the, op the oppressors to the oppressed. It's almost as if it was like, yes, I've, I've finished dealing with these people, but let me talk about those people who are now oppressed. And he started to say, Interesting things, and it says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waited for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receives the early and latter rain. This is a reminder to us as Christians that I say it many a times we can't escape trials, we can't escape suffering. If 
we were coming to the faith and we had to sign a list and be like, oh yeah, what are the things that you do not want to experience? Huh. You see trials, you see, you see persecution. Like, so, tick, nope, tick, nope. Like, you, and it would be very fascinating because you see that all of us would tick the same thing. We'll take the same thing because we don't want to go through that. Nobody wants to. But we have to. You see, there's an urgent need for Christians to practice endurance, knowing fully well that the return of Jesus Christ is certain. It's not an illusion. It's not a maybe. It is certain and it is confirmed. Let's turn to First Thessalonians 5, verse 14. It says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient towards all men. Being the key word, be patient towards all men. You see, patience is not... It's not a passive thing. If, if we're truly awaiting, you know, Christ's return, it's not for us to, okay, what's the time now? Okay, it's almost seven. Okay, let me wait for I know it to be, to be seven o'clock. It's, it's not that. Patience is an active thing. And it's by our actions and by our attitudes and by our speech that you can say, okay, this person is truly truly waiting and truly patient with God. I mean, we hear a lot of stories about our brothers and sisters who are going through a lot. You know, and this particular passage, especially from 7 to 12, is an encouragement for all of us, even us that are here, that the Lord is coming. Whatever we might be going through, whatever suffering we might be going through, that the Lord sees it all. But in that waiting period, in that waiting period, first and foremost, we have to resist grumbling. We should not grumble with one another, you know. And James paints two key facts. He said, number one, he says, those who are oppressing the just, first and foremost, will be held accountable for their sin. So, do not worry. They're going to be held accountable. And the second point, which is interesting, it says, okay, so you that are being oppressed, also be watchful and do not respond, you know, by carrying out your own judgment because you can face condemnation that way. You know, some people will say, I will do my own. <laughs> Let me just hit the jackpot. I will do my own. No. No. See, grumbling is... What grumbling entails is that we do not trust God. What you're directly saying, or indirectly, if you do not know, is that you're saying that the Lord is not competent enough. The Lord is not true to his word. Grumbling is like a faithless complaint of discontent. It's not an act of faith. Rather, it's kind of an act of fear. When we grumble, what we're saying is that 
you do not trust that God is going to do it. Simple as that. Mm, Philippians 2 verse saying, whatever you do, do it without murmuring or dispute. So we should not grumble. In our time of waiting, we should not grumble, you know. And he started to list examples about the prophets and Job. You know, Job is a very popular example that people, you know, throw up and down because what he went through was a lot, you know. That the reason why these people, these prophets, had to go what they had to go through is because they spoke in the name of the Lord. If you look at, you know, Jeremiah 38, where King Zedekiah wrongly imprisoned him and he was sent into the dungeon dungeon left to die and even in that moment he never voiced a complaint towards God or even towards the people that did it and time and time again we see examples of many prophets who you know experienced rejection persecution even martyrdom all for Christ You look at the story of Job too, who the Lord showed compassion and mercy towards and sustained him throughout everything he went through. I mean, he lost his, all his wealth, lost his family, lost everything. Lost his confidence too. But you see that after the trials at the other side, he was even more blessed. Not just physical blessing. He had gone through something that made him seal his trust in God more. And that's what trial does. The beautiful thing about trial, it, it builds us up. It builds our faith in God. And the next thing in verse 12, to finalize everything, was... Resist swearing. You know, if you look at from the beginning of James chapter 1, you know, James highlighted a lot of things, especially talking about our tongue. You know, that the tongue is the window to the heart and it's a true test of our character. And time and time again, you know, James spoke about this. And there's power in oath. Swearing essentially means giving utmost validity and assurance to a certain matter. And what this does is that it takes away the God factor out of the equation. So it gives a narration that you are infallible. And the only person that can be infallible is God. And a Christian shouldn't swear. I mean, when I was growing up, that was the favorite thing to do. People put their hand on their tongue and they'll <laughs> put it up to the to the sky and they will call my great grandmother or someone that just died, you know, to seal the deal. Or, you know, let's shake on it or they'll cross their fingers. A Christian should not swear. You should not resort to swearing just to prove that you're telling the truth. Because essentially what that means is that all the other times you're essentially lying. If you have to swear to prove that 
at that point in time, you are telling the truth. And you Christians should tell the truth at all times. You shouldn't swear. Let our yes be yes and let our no be no. We don't need to resort to means like that just to prove a point. And these are the two key themes that James highlighted. We should not swear. We should not grumble. In everything we do, we should hold on to our confession of God because he's coming. There's a song that says, he's coming back again. My Lord is coming back again. He went away and he promised that he's coming back again. Because he's truly coming again. And that, that, that should be our joy. That should excite us. Because we're truly in the last days. Five years from now, God knows how this earth would be. With the things that we're seeing. With the things that are happening all over the world. Things that were a shame now, it's in broad daylight, you know, for everybody to see. And it's affecting our youth, it's affecting each and every one of us. And the hope that we have is our, our Savior is coming back again. And we need to hold on to that even as we continue in this journey. And I pray the Lord will help us. Shall we rise up?